You're listening to the Changing Lives Podcast, where we talk with health professionals, industry experts, and everyday heroes, changing lives on the front lines through emergency healthcare. I'm Ben Cleaver. And I'm Tim Buxton. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yes. Yeah, today is uh, the first in a two-part series, our conversation with Jamie Hibbert who's an advanced care paramedic for the Queensland Ambulance Service. Uh, Jamie's been on road for 13 years and more recently operating uh, with an extended scope as a local area assessment and referral unit officer. I needed to read that. (laughs) Let's just say LaRue officer as it's known in the service. So in part one of the interview, Jamie explains the role of LaRue in reducing the burden on the hospital system, as well as the rewards and challenges of working as a specialist single officer uh, for LaRue. Perhaps most notably, one of the challenges is no lights and sirens. You have to stop at red lights and obey the road rules. Wow. Well, Jamie wasn't always going to be a paramedic and he tells the story of his career journey from missing out on his first few degree uh, preferences coming out of school um, to going on to complete an international business degree. Mm. And then to a defining moment years later where he realized he wasn't at all happy and uh, he decided that he was going to become a paramedic and uh, and fulfil his passion to really help people. Mm, yeah, and Jamie's perspective on addressing mental health cases and putting yourself in the shoes of the patient is both inspiring and helpful for anyone wanting to be a better healthcare provider. This episode will be particularly insightful for those interested in learning more about the different scopes of practice within uh, the state service and the different sort of roles and skills required. Yeah, then in part two, we'll delve into being a paramedic as a father of four as well and hear more about Jamie's published writing on the positive impacts of dark humour amongst paramedics, coping with illness and trauma on a daily basis. And that's coming shortly, but for now, let's get into part one of our interview with advanced care paramedic, Jamie Hibbert. Let's do it. Uh, another one that uh, I just, just quickly was, I was a student for a second year or something and it was one of my first paranoid um, patients' mental health cases that I'd been to. And um, it went up there and I was patient care and I was still trying to learn patient um, interviews and, and he said, you know, oh, there's people out to get me and I'm just fearful for my life and I need to go to hospital because I'm, I'm really psyching out and I don't want to kill myself. and. I said, yep, no worries, let's go, and headed down to the car, and it was, it was dark, it was after sunset, and he's, we get into the car, and he said, mate, can we turn the lights down, because I don't want people to see me, and I was thinking, this guy is off the charts, I mean, he is, this is, this is straight out of Die Hard or something, you know, <laughs> and, um, and then on the way, he was telling his story, and I was just sort of listening, and trying to sound sincerely interested, you know, trying to work, work out what parts I'm going to tell it, hand over, because half this doesn't really matter to the case and and he looked at me in the eye and it's part of his rambling he said look I know this is all BS to you but it's real to me and the way he said it he just stopped me in my tracks and I went wow it's real to him now none of this stuff that was going on that he was talking about I believe was actually happening in real life I, I believe he was um, probably under the influence of drugs paranoid all that kind of stuff and it was just coming out, it was manifesting. And 
but the way he said it's real to him it, it just really taught me to listen to the patients and their complaints because Great. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for your time today, jumping on the podcast. We can't wait to get into things. Um, thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Now, we're going to go into your role as an advanced care paramedic. Um, you've been on road for 13 years. The last two years, you've been uh, working under an extended scope as a LaRue officer. We're going to go into what it is. Um, but firstly, mate, you weren't always going to be a, a paramedic. We met at university 20 years ago. That sounds yep. like way too long. Um, <laughs> you didn't particularly love your degree, I remember. No. There was also a car that you bought, and I haven't told you that I remember this, but it, had, it was covered in flower stickers. <laughs> and for whatever reason, it was, well, because you were giving me a lift home from Sunshine Coast to Caboolture, and um, for whatever reason, we were peeling, uh, half, then half the day peeling those flower stickers off your car. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. I, I bought that car um, as a downgrade because my other one was um, chewing too much fuel for a, a student, a uni student. And uh, I bought this thing the night before and I just literally drove it up because I'd sold another one that night. And it was, it was, I bought it from a, a lady and she had the stickers on it and I hated it. I thought the first thing I'm doing is taking them off. So I was in the car park with a uh, some kind of blade or something, peeling these big stickers off <laughs> to to make it a more masculine look, being a you know a blue barina, and uh, I got a lot of fun memories of that car. It's a good one. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> now, give us a, a tell us about your journey from from there to to now being an advanced care paramedic with the Queensland Ambulance Service. Um, can you yes. elaborate? So what happened was, um, I was I had applied to do um, four different degrees. So I, I um, always wanted to go into medicine, but never felt myself good enough. So I thought I, I, I discovered language that I loved doing, and I applied to do linguistics, so I could do translation work, and I was full on going to do that. And that my advisor said, put four preferences down just in case. And lo and behold, I was offered my last preference, being international business, and I was. I was gutted. I almost didn't start, but um, someone said, look, you can always jump across and do that. So I thought, well, I'll start. And it was a miserable year, actually. I, I did not enjoy it. I thought, I'll keep going. And um, I came out the other side uh, with my degree. But um, the, the study process itself, I remember thinking the whole time, I'm not a business person. I have no interest in business like that. And um, it's something that I would try to switch across. Long story short, I didn't. I finished the degree. I thought, oh, well, I'll just try to use this thing. I'd sort of try to reprogram my mind. And um, I got a job uh, in, in a call center of all things, you know, just taking calls for concrete, ordering ordering concrete trucks and abuse for late orders. And, and I remember thinking to myself, this is not what I wanted. I felt like I was stuck in a rut, you know. And um, my supervisor in the... In the job pulled me aside one day and said you hate this job don't you I said yes and she says well why don't you leave and I said I've been trying to leave for a year because I had actually been trying to get other jobs and unsuccessful it was a bad time to get a job 
And um, she says, well, what do you like to do? I says, I don't know. I like helping people, community stuff, because my, my resume was filled with things that I loved to do on the side for fun. And I had to stop those things to go to work so I could earn a living. So I thought, she, well, she said, well, what about this? What about that? What about police? What about Ambos? What about, and listed a few other things. And the word Ambo just hit me in the eyes. I thought, I've never thought of that. And because um, my, my favorite two things to do in life are driving and helping people. And um, this job in, would entail both. I thought, and I can get paid for it. So I thought, well, why not? Give it a shot. So I applied and it took me 18 months to get in. Um, but as soon as I put that application in, this, this thing rose up inside of me. I thought, wow, I just can't wait to do this. And um, I still didn't know what it was about. I knew it was like, you know, lights and sirens and hospitals and car accidents and the usual stuff. But something drew me to the aspect of helping other people and um, and then getting a paycheck at the end for having fun, pretty much. And so that was my my introduction to, to ambulance work, pretty much. I, I, I always felt I kind of fell into it because I never went out going to say, I'm going to become a paramedic. And the, the ultimate irony is, um, something I never told you, Ben, was in the first year of, of uni, they had the, the careers expo and all these little stalls lined up and, you know, do this, do that, do, you know, engineering and all that. And there was a little ambulance stall there and um, a person standing there with a table and brochures and, you know, stretcher. And I looked at it and I remember thinking, that's not a degree, that's only a diploma. And I walked past because I was out for a degree, you know, because <laughs> back then it was diploma studies only. And I remember thinking, looking back, you know, seven or eight years of my life I had to traverse in order to end up what I was going to do anyway. Because I remember looking at it thinking, oh, that'd be cool. But I was, I was held up by the academic side of um, not a degree. Of course, it's changed now. But... Um, I remember I always laughed thinking, oh, I should have done it then. I'd be so much further ahead in my career. But um, we go through these these seasons of life to teach us things, I think. And uh, I learned a lot in that, that years before I started. Um, that taught me life skills that actually helped me in the job now. And Jamie... There's, as you've alluded to, it's there's a different setup now. Obviously, you need to go through a bachelor degree um, to then be registered. There's a couple of different pathways there, but you um, started a diploma and got more initial on-road experience. Can you talk about the differences of your pathway into uh, the paramedic role as opposed to what it is now? Yeah, so the biggest factor, I guess, is experience that you don't gain while studying a degree. Um, mine was a full-time permanent employment straight up out, out of the gate. Um, so I started off as a, a student, paramedic student with no scope, no skills, and I was well, training under a mentor. And I was doing the, the um, studies on the side, like the assignments and assessments and stuff. And by the time I qualified two and a half years later, I had had two and a half years of full-time on-road experience um, which I think is is has been a lifesaver no pun intended but um, it's been so helpful to by the time I was teaching my own students I had two and a half years on road 
these days it's degree based and um I don't know. I think it's up to maybe six weeks placements total sometimes for some degrees. Unis are different. But um, so there's some people coming out with their epaulets on um, and they're starting a um, they're starting off as a qualified and they've got maybe a month or two tops of training on road, um, seeing touching patients and and getting that on road, that feel, seeing conditions re in real life as opposed to a textbook thing. Um, and so I, I find some of them are overwhelmed with the, um, with the, the reality of, of ambulance work and patients, dealing with patients, the mental health, the stresses of the job, the get, getting thrown into high acuity cases without actually doing, without doing more than an assignment on it. Um, so I find a lot of people find themselves, yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit stressed occasionally, uh, if they're not the right person for the job or not. Um, not much life experience behind them. So it's a real combination package that um, I think people are missing out on these days. Um, I happened to be, I was 27 when I started. And um, so I, I hadn't had a massive life experience, but that extra eight or nine years compared to when you start sometimes is is everything. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge um, head start, I guess. Um, so yeah, I had, I come out with an academic diploma and um, I've since done other studies and, and upgraded that but um, the degree gives you a, a, a broader base of learning especially with the evolution of education um, the things that were standard back then when I started are now base level and, and, and sort of below even and um, there's been new skills new drugs new concepts that have been added over the years um, and now we are in you know 2020 with the, the current scope of practice and academic requirements just to start so it's been a, quite an evolution I think. Wow. Well, Jamie, it's really good to meet you. Um, ben was telling me a, a, a lot about about you before we got the opportunity to jump on this chat with you. And I was just thinking then about that that defining moment, I guess, that you had when, when you were confronted and, and, and realised, is this really, is this, am I doing really what I want to do? Um, and to see the perseverance, like you said, it was like you were traversing across I just had that picture of, you know, when, when you go skiing or snowboarding and you kind of have to go across to get to that point where you go down and what, 13 yep. years on now, um, on-road experience with the Queensland Ambulance Service. Um, and you are, you're now an advanced, what they call an advanced care paramedic. And for, for someone like me, I just hear the word paramedic and I think, well, that's kind of, there's only one kind of paramedic out there and that's, you're in the ambulance. Can you kind of... For, for our audience today, kind of explain more what is specifically an advanced care paramedic. And I understand you you are a LaRue officer. Uh, a bit yes. more about what that is and maybe where it fits into all the different kinds of you're alluding to different different kind of mm. broaden your scopes, different different areas that you can, can work in there. It'd be really good to hear some of that. Okay. So the term advanced care paramedic is, um, I suppose, I, I would define it as the industry standard for healthcare pre-hospital. Um, so if you were to go from a scale of one to 10 with skill set and scope of practice, advanced care is actually only about five or six out of 10 for possible scope levels. Um, and I put it there because uh, LaRue is an extended scope of practice. So a few extra drugs and skills and stuff. 
But then you've got the critical care paramedic, which is higher again, and uh, they do even more advanced airways and, and procedures. But then above then, you've got the high acuity, which is the, um, or they, they give bloods and, and do um, rapid sequence induction and um, things like that for um, patients who are um, literally on the brink of death. Um, and then you've got the flight paramedics who do all of that and have the doctors on board and, and they do infusions and, and, and long flight transports and, and um, go pick them up from the car racks out at that Warwick and all that and bring them straight into the Royal. So when you consider all those higher levels, advanced care paramedics, I'm actually level two. So the standard is level two. 20 years ago, you were just a paramedic and then they introduced advanced care. Uh, and then they, the, the standard paramedic, uh, you probably hear the word Charlie officer because Charlie, you've got Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. Alpha mm. is the critical care, Bravo is the standard advanced care. Charlie is the, the lower level that used to be standard that haven't upgraded. Then they introduced level two advanced care, which is um, so refining of um, certain pain reliefs or uh, other things like cannulation they have increased. So um, I trained always into advanced care and then level two, everyone leveled up. But then anything beyond that is, is a special training program uh, wow. to, um, to progress into other areas. So any time you met with a crew uh, on road, the odds are you'll be at, at least have one advanced care level two paramedic, but we just call them advanced care paramedics. And then there's not almost always a second officer of the same level, but most cases now you've got... Um, graduate paramedics who have come out through the, the degree um, and we call them GPIPs, which stands for Graduate Paramedic Induction Program. It's a one-year full-time on-road where they consolidate their learning in a full-time capacity um, to get that one year's experience and, and just consolidate. And after that, they do a final assessment to uh, qualify as an independent practitioner of the, the scope of practice. And then they're ACP level two. Um, most people from there go to, a, um, if there's no opportunities for permanent employment, they go into a casual pool where you're a casual officer and work on demand. And um, But whenever you called in to shift, you are an independent um, clinician able to work as a, as a single officer, un, 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 unsupervised, uh, or even have a student. And um, so that that's the sort of the, the range of the scope. I hope I explain, explain that. So anyone below oh, yeah. that... ACP is like a patient transport officer or a Charlie officer, one stripe as opposed to two stripes, um, or just someone who's like a first responder or maybe even in comms with the first aid certificate. Yeah, thanks for that. That's uh, for a novice like me, that's certainly opened my eyes um, for sure. Yeah, so now for the last two years, you've been in uh, the local area assessment referral unit used to be called yep. a low acuity assessment unit or, or something you referred to the other day. But can you explain what that role is? And then well, I want to hear, because you've been uh, in our discussions, you've really found, it seems like you've kind of found your 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 place, a real uh, role where you feel like utilises all your strengths interpersonally particularly. Yep. Um, and I didn't know this kind of unit. I saw the the, the four drive ambulances driving around, but I didn't know the difference between them and, you know, the full white bus, you know. So can you explain yep. um, what your role is? Okay, so the LaRue officer, low acuity or low local area referral unit, 
um, is it's a single officer role um, and it's tailor-made for those who have got a bit more, say, five years plus experience in the role. And it's designed, it's aimed at, um, at going out and assessing patients and treating them um, who uh, sort of fall into the low acuity category of work. Um, so you won't you won't be sent to any heart attacks or you know chest pains or births or car crashes unless you happen to be the absolute closest for miles. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty cool issue that needs to be addressed because I'm a Larue officer is one level up from the ACP level two. So I've put them at back to going back to that scale. I've put them at a seven out of ten as opposed to the five or six. Because um, they're, they're trained in extra things like I can do stitches and glue for lacerations. That, that's my criteria. Uh, we can use lignocaine to, to, to help numb the side and do other things um, when giving certain drugs to relieve pain, uh, to reduce the pain of administration. Um, so it's a slightly extended role. But one of the key facets of this particular role is that um, the rule was, was created to help relieve the burden of patient demand on the health system of the hospitals. So I am qualified to assess patients and then leave them at home if they are deemed suitable. Um, I'm also trained in wound management, so I can look at a wound and decide if it's healing okay on its own or it needs dressing or um, skin tears. I can um, fix a skin tear and then decide if it needs to stay at home or could stay at home or needs to be transported. And even then, if I transport, we have the extra sort of um, ability to go, okay, you don't need a hospital. You need a clinician. You can go to a, a hub, like a health hub for this, or maybe we can get you in back in with your GP. Um, so it doesn't have to be a hospital. The hospital is the, the best, highest level of, of care, but in most cases, a, a doctor's clinic can do the same thing that will be required that the hospital will do anyway, like um, intravenous antibiotics for some clinics, uh, basic trauma for a laceration that, that if it's outside of my scope of practice, like I can't do joints or certain you know areas of the body that are considered high risk, but um, you know these local local low trauma clinics can can do that just like the hospital can. Um, and sometimes we can leave them at home, give them advice, and and um, say, look, try this, try this, and if that doesn't help, then call us back. And um, it's not frowned upon, but it's got to be done with a certain level of um, clinical nous because a lot of things can be missed. Um, one of the classic conditions that we go to, or sort of say categories, not specific condition, is you go to patients who are actually chronically ill and they're dealing with long-term illness that cannot and won't be cured. So it's more managing the condition rather than fixing it on the spot or taking it to a place for a quick fix. Because uh, these patients, um, some of them are dying slowly, yes, and some are just managing a chronic illness until such time that um, it may not kill them, but it'll they'll die with it. And so these patients have a higher um, possibility of getting septic or getting conditions that um, a, a sub-condition that it can often be missed um, or it could be a new onset of a new condition that gets um, drowned out by their presenting chronic illness. And... So we've, we've got extra assessments. So we can do like a, a focused cardiac assessment, focused abdominal assessment or a respiratory assessment or a musculoskeletal or a neurological assessment, like check the cranial nerves and sometimes isolate a problem that may not have been found. Um, mm. 
with actually wrote an article for our local Insight magazine uh, that's internal for QAS, and it was basically showcasing the LaRue um, clinical scope because I went to this mystery patient who had something wrong and he couldn't tell me what. I, and I basically went through each assessment in step and I found nothing. And he, he needed a transport crew and I spent 40 minutes waiting for this crew. And the last thing I did was one final assessment in my arsenal of training and I found what it was that this guy had had that was new and it matched all his presentation. Now, I didn't know exactly what it was, but I said, look, he needs to go to hospital for that. I found something that's not right because any other crew would have gone, mm, I don't know, we'll just take it to hospital for something. Um, they wouldn't have maybe found it because um, they, they don't go through the training of this particular focused assessment that we can do. So LaRue has a few areas of, of benefit, I guess, where it keeps people out of hospital where they don't need to be there. Got a few extra um, skills so we can do t treatment at home and then leave them at home if it's deemed appropriate. And the other thing is to find sometimes the more uh, hidden uh, um, problems of people that experiencing that may not be found by standard um, you call we haul mentality type. You know, so that's that's probably LaRue in a nutshell. Um, we don't have a stretcher. It's just single officer, no partner, gear and uh, seat in the back of the car or the front. And uh, we don't have lights or sirens either. So I miss Daisy everywhere. Just just drive along. If they send me to a high acuity job, I've been to many cardiac arrests, first on scene, closest by 20 minutes. Um, I have to go road speed, stop at the red lights, wait to turn right. Um, it's painful sometimes. But, you know, if we get a if I get a speeding fine, there's no justification for it because I don't have the, the vehicle to do uh, lights and sirens in, an, in a high acuity situation. Wow, so, that's yeah, Sorry? That's it. really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so if you see the SUVs getting around with lights and sirens, they're actually the critical care paramedic. And then I'm actually, we, we drive Hyundai I-loads at the moment. I call them pie vans because uh, they look exactly like a pie van. Um, but they don't have lights or sirens, just little orange flicker lights. And um, it, it, it's a mindset. LaRue's a different game altogether. You're trained as a, you start on a truck, you go through all the other stuff, and then you switch to a different mindset of game. And you still got to um, deal with your patients. And I forgot to ask your, answer your question to him about dealing with people. I find that the best part about my role um, from a person, personal or interpersonal side is uh, giving that, the patient that one-on-one -on -one experience, that tailor-made um, response to their needs. And I, I think anyone needs to do this, even if they're with a partner. But with, um, with LaRue, you can, you, you, they give you extra time on scene to just focus in on, on what's, what the bigger picture is, not just the presenting issue. And with that, I like to use uh, even my sense of humor to mm. make light, not, not make light of the situation, but to help the patient feel more comfortable about what's going on um, and, and to really um, disarm their fears and worries about stuff because take I've been to patients where they're, they're just really worked up and it's it's really nothing but they don't know that so patient education is huge uh, letting them know a that what they're experiencing is normal but b that it's not an emergency that doesn't need you know a hospital now but it needs treatment or it needs something 
or actually even the other way where um, they call for, oh, it's just nothing, you know, and you've, you find a bunch of vital signs that are totally out of whack. And I go, mate, you should have called two days ago. Oh, I didn't want to waste your time. You know, it's like, dude, you're not wasting my time. Let's go now. Yeah. So, so that's a long, I suppose. No, that, that, but yeah. look, I, I feel like my my mind is like, been open to you know just not only this specific role but the many different um avenues that people that really want to serve you know are signing up to maybe become a paramedic can actually serve in yep. I mean, you're you're a remarkable you're a remarkable person jamie i love the 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 i guess the um the real passion you have to really care for that um patient and um I can really see that you're definitely um, well well suited for that role, and I think we find that <laughs> with you. a lot of um, folk that we're interviewing, that mm. the dedication that it takes to not only just do a job, but to actually do it, do it well and thoroughly. Yeah. Um, I don't think is something that people coming into to these studies actually realise. It actually takes that that element of quality um, and care. Um, yeah. Yeah maybe slight diversion, but a lot of the complaints we get are attitudinal from officers mm. or from patients about crews. Um, people love, they're in love with ambulance work. Like, like they come to scene, yes, they, we're heroes, we're whatever, like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Mm. But when, when things go sour at three in the morning, when a crew doesn't want to be there, the, the, everyone complains about the bad attitude of the crews. Wow. You know, um, I was actually a subject of a complaint. I was the driver of, of a crew one night when um, we rocked up three in the morning and my partner, who was patient care, did all the talking. And um, I, w I felt uneasy with the way it was going, but I didn't say anything because I was just the driver. Not that that's anything less because I'm still qualified, but I, I let it happen. Next week, complaint come out about us. And I still remember it said, the, patient ma uh, the crew made me feel stupid for calling an ambulance. And I remember thinking, I didn't even say a word. How dare they? But then I had a check in my heart. I thought, well, wait a minute. I allowed that to happen. I was there and I didn't say anything. I didn't defend the patient. I didn't actually correct my, my partner. And I was just as responsible. So yeah. my attitude, even though it was silent, was allowed to be reflected through my partner's words and his tone of voice and, and body language. And I was responsible for that. So... Yeah, it's all about a lot of it is attitude. You know, your training is, is superb. Um, you get all you need, even with uni and limited experience, you get awesome training. But no one can change your attitude but you. Um, you know, and how you respond to your treat, uh, to your patients, how you treat your patients, how you uh, downplay or upscale the problem is, is totally up to the individual. Mm. Mm. I guess it's that real difference, isn't it, between... Uh, doing a job because you've got to do a job, you got to pay the bills right. um, and I'll do it to the level I can. Um, but it then moves into, as opposed to doing a, fulfilling a sense of purpose. Um, mm. And I'll, I'll be honest, it can be difficult because I'm sure you've got things going on in your personal life mm. and not everyone wakes up no matter how much you like your job and things are going well, you kind of do have to, switch on yep. you're kind of dealing with potential you know life death you know could be very serious situations and you kind of need to make sure you're yeah. able to yeah. do that how do you even how do you manage that 
you, yeah. you I suppose the word compartmentalization comes to mind. Um, like some of the biggest, one of the biggest memories I've had is, you know, you, you go to this massive recess, a, a huge, like traumatic case. There's grief, there's death, there's, there's, um, it, it, it's catastrophic. And then you got to go from that. You know, it, um, you've had the biggest job of your career sometimes. You have a debrief, whatever, and then sometime later you go to the next job and it's a headache. And hmm. the person goes, I've been waiting for you for four hours. Where have you been? You know, <laughs> and you just replay the last four hours of your life and you, you, you look at that patient, you're almost looking through them thinking, you have no idea what I've just been through and you're complaining about a headache. You know, like I've just left a mum holding her dead baby who, who died from SIDS or drowned in a pool or, you know, and we've, we've cut clothing off and put needles in and, you know, all that. And now you're complaining about a headache. <laughs> and But that person is still going through a big event for them. Mm. And so sometimes we're human, we fail miserably sometimes, and that's probably some of the other complaint generation. But it's about, okay, I've just got to pull that behind, behind me now and deal with this patient as if for the first time because it is the first time for them sometimes. But even if they're a frequent flyer, it's the first time you've dealt with them for that case, for that day. And that's, that's incredibly difficult to do. Uh, sometimes it takes years to practice and occasionally to put people off-road because they can't handle the dynamics of going from an absolute code one, cat, category one patient to uh, this patient doesn't even need to the waiting room mm. type of job. And differentiating that or separating them in your mind from each other is difficult. Uh, it takes practice, but something that I've tried to take into, especially for the LaRue, because you go from lights and sirens, half the jobs, to never lights and sirens, and they're mm. all um, just, you know, not in... I don't want to say not important. I don't, they're not high, high acuity. Mm. And I had to develop the mindset that every patient needs me mm. for this case. This person that I'm going to, some of the most ridiculous circumstances I've been pulled out of to go to, uh, I feel that we're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and I, I go there, I'm, I'm cranky, I'm like, oh, this is stupid. And then I'll get there, I'll meet the patient, I'll see their case, I'll treat them, I'll find their, their vital signs, and I go, I am so glad I met you for this job, for this case. I could make that difference that no other crew would have made. I remember I've had a, a very difficult patient one day. Um, she was very needy. She had a genuine case that needed treatment. Now, not wasn't life-threatening. It was just just there. And um, one of the, the, uh, the nightmares of the job is getting ramped at hospital. I hate getting ramped. I find it demoralizing being stuck in a, in a corridor for two to three hours with a patient on a stretcher. I'd rather drive to Gold Coast and back on one job than sit in a corridor for three hours. That's just me. People love it because it's downtime for them. But um, mm. I remember this patient, she she um, was hurting. She was in pain. I'd maxed out my pain relief. She was stuck at hospital. She needed to lie down. She needed to sit up. It hurt. She needed to go to the toilet. She needed her bag. It was just, it was painful. And then I was three hours doing this with her and it gets emotionally draining. You know, it wasn't a traumatic job at all, but 
I remember thinking to myself, I cannot wait to get away from this person and just flee, you know? And I was getting really within myself, just like, this, I'm done. <laughs> Going home or something. And then right at the end, we get our, our bed number and we go to the corridor, up the corridor to the, um, the cubicle. And then we've got the process of getting her painfully onto the, onto the bed because it's all, she's delicate and hurting. And, and finally, I do the handover and like, I'm out of here. And just as I turn to leave, she grabs me by the hand and looks me in the eyes and says, thank you. And just like the emotion just that flooded from her to me, it was like, I knew exactly what she meant. Like, thank you for everything you have just done. And suddenly, all of that three hours was worth it. And I remember feeling a twinge of selfishness, but thinking like, you shouldn't have been so selfish, you know? She was in pain and all that, but it was just, for me, it was a defining moment where I went, wow, I didn't think any of that mattered, but it all mattered to her. Wow. Um, and it was, I suppose it led into, yeah, development of that mentality down the track. Mm. Uh, another one that uh, I'll just, just quickly was, I was a student for a second year or something, and it was one of my first paranoid um, patients' mental health cases that I'd been to. And um, it went up there, and I was patient care, and I was still trying to learn patient um, interviews. And, and he said, you know, oh, there's these people out to get me, and I'm just fearful for my life, and I need to go to hospital because I'm, I'm really psyching out, and I don't want to kill myself. And I said, yep, no worries, let's go. And headed down to the car and it was it was dark it was after sunset and he's we get into the car and he said mate can we turn the lights down because i don't want people to see me and i was thinking this guy is off the charts i mean he is this is this is straight out of die hard or something you know <laughs> and um and then on the way he was telling his story and i was just sort of listening and trying to sound sincerely interested you know trying to work work out what parts i'm going to tell it hand over because half this doesn't really matter to the case and and he looked at me in the eye and it's part of his rambling. He said, look, I know this is all BS to you, but it's real to me. And the way he said it, he just stopped me in my tracks. and I went, wow, it's real to him. Now, none of this stuff that was going on that he was talking about, I believe was actually happening in real life. I, I believe he was um, probably under the influence of drugs, paranoid, all that kind of stuff. And it was just coming out. It was manifesting. And But the way he said... It's real to him. It, it just really taught me to listen to the patient and their complaints because it's not quite the customer's always right, like a shopping experience, because often they're wrong. They're just misinformed, uneducated. They don't know what's going on. But at the moment of pain that they're experiencing, the moment they can't breathe, when their ICPO2 is 99%, they can't breathe. And that you just treat them like that. It's not like, oh, it's all fine, your sats mm. are good, or, oh, look, I've given you 10 of morphine, you should be broken by now. If it hurts for them, it hurts. If they can't breathe, they can't breathe. And just the, the, it's the subjectivity of patient care that um, mm. people, I think, ignore. Because we go on the objective numbers. The, 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 this fracture has been splintered and it's now straight. I've given you lots of pain relief. You've got oxygen. You know, you're sitting upright. There's no way you can't breathe. And we, we deal objectively, I think, a bit too much when the patient is subjective and they're going, I can't breathe, it hurts, I'm scared, and I'm hungry. And so the, that's the angle that they deal with us and we try to hit it with the objective and the two do not meet sometimes. Mm. And that's where we need to change our mindset and go, okay, 
let's treat the patient from their point of view, their angle, their perspective, and try that again. And once that happens, it, it's a whole different experience because they feel the, um, the, that you're actually on their side now. You know, and it's, oh, there's hundreds of stories like that. But wow. I suppose they're the, maybe the, the key principles of all of them mm. um, that, that keep coming home. So I'm hearing this, you know, that, that simple way of putting your person in, putting yourself in the person's shoes is such a, a key kind of uh, perspective when you're going in and, yes. and helping somebody not non-judgmental and trying to put yourself in, mm. in, in the place of them. Yeah. Paramedics are the worst judges in the world. I've got to say, <laughs> you know, we, you read the little, it's called the NDT, the mobile data terminal, the, the screen that gives you the case details. You read that and you have assessed, treated, judged, diagnosed and discharged them before you even get to scene because you read and go, ah, oh, this is stupid, you know? <laughs> and my, my other rule is the NDT is always wrong because I'll give you details, but it only provides wow. a skeletal framework of what you're going to. And half the time it's not even true or accurate at all. You know, the only thing correct is the address and even they're skeptical, um, sketchy sometimes because they change. Um, you know, because if, and once again, it's stuff you pick up from crews as you're learning, as, as you're tra training. You've got to guard yourself against picking wow. up bad judgmental habits. Thanks for listening to another episode of Changing Lives, brought to you by Australian Paramedical College. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider rating it leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe to stay tuned for all future episodes. Did you know we're also on YouTube? Search for Changing Lives Podcast and you can watch our episodes in HD video, see the studio and put a face to a name. Speaking of studios, this podcast was filmed, recorded and produced by Make Media Studios. Special thanks to our audio-visual engineer and editor, Jose Biotto. And as always, it has been great to be with you. Until next time, don't stop changing lives.